Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And with Halloween right around the corner on today's episode, we are going to discuss the scariest moments in Harry Potter. What kinds of moments are we talking about, Eric? We're talking about moments that give us the heebie-jeebies. And then later in the episode, we'll be doing some spooky readings of the original Fantastic Beast book. We're going to try to creep you out by narrating the descriptions of some of the creepiest characters. Also spooky is the election coming up here in the United States in a couple of weeks. Many absentee ballot request deadlines are approaching here in the United States and early voting is underway. So please make sure you are registered to vote in your state right now by visiting IWillVote.com. Then think of your voting plan and vote by November 3rd. I have my ballot. My local ballot box is opening up this weekend. I'm going to go drop it in there. I'm so excited to vote and then wear my sticker. That's what it's all about, really, isn't it? It's getting that sticker. You feel like a kid again. Yeah, I actually already voted. Uh, Early voting started here in Georgia last week, and I went on the first day. Nice. Laura was in a hazmat suit, 10 masks, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a hamster wheel. I did double mask, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, why not? go down to uh, State Farm Arena, or that's probably a little bit too far from where you are, right? That's not in my district. In your district. Yeah. Okay. Mike, you just wanted to like location drop to brag that he's been in Georgia, I I guess. I (laughs) I have been in Georgia. No, I I will say one thing I am really proud of the NBA is what they've done in terms of opening up arenas and facilities, both for early vote and for voting on election day that otherwise wouldn't be available. So that Mm. started really this past week uh, with State Farm Arena in Atlanta. And from what I've heard, that might actually be the largest polling site in the country. That's so cool. Cool. I was like, why is he bringing this up? It's so (laughs) random. But now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. Okay, so we're going to jump straight into our main discussion today, the scariest and creepiest moments in all of Harry Potter. We've done many Halloween episodes over the years, but we've never done something like this. So I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You all know that October is the month I finally, once a year, get to embrace my last name. Uh, So try and try and think about spooky skulls and pumpkins and all that stuff. So um, definitely had fun coming up with this week's discussion and also credit where it's due. Uh, My girlfriend Meg helped me uh, to plan and execute and you'll hear some of her thoughts as well on these beasts. We're going to go in chronological order. So, you know, there's a lot of events in these books. We tend to think of the books as being this like, welcoming, comfortable fantasy. It's calming, or it's like a grand mystery in the hero's journey. But there's some truly terrifying moments in the books, both in the foreground and in the background. Yeah, especially when you're an an 11-year-old. They they just are maximum creepy and terrifying and probably traumatizing for the rest of your life. This first one is exactly that, because at the end of Sorcerer's Stone, when Quirrell dies, they're, just the way that it's described in the books is really, really graphic. He In the books, he sprouts boils everywhere that Harry, sort of the skin-on-skin contact. And in the movie, he like crumples to dust. <laughs> it's like screaming mm-hmm. in agony and terror in both versions. And I just, like, this is just so, when I read it the first time, because I had seen the movie first, when I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like extremely extra. And Laura, you said you actually read this when you were 11? Yeah. So I got 
the Harry Potter, the first three Potter books for my 11th birthday and burned through them. And I distinctly remember turning this page into the final chapter of Sorcerer's Stone, where it was like the, the last line of the chapter before was like, you know, Harry entered the room and who he saw wasn't who he expected. It wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. And then you turn the next page and it said it was Quirrell. And I was like, (laughs) what? Like, I I was not expecting that. But what I also love about this is that um, the idea of like a, a duality of personalities possessing one body is a really common theme in horror. And this isn't like a perfect comparison, but it makes me think of um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for example. Uh, You know, Hmm. so like this, this is something that you can find examples of in horror fiction going way, way back. And I actually think that J.K. Rowling was influenced by a lot of that literature. Mm -hmm. It's possible. There's also... One other one from Sorcerer's Stone, Micah pointed out. Yeah, I, I thought it would be fun to bring up Fluffy. Number one, just given the name that this three-headed dog has. <laughs> it's very scary. And I'm assuming that was not its given name. It's just the name given by Hagrid after he acquires him. But just the fact that within this school, that tends to be a security nightmare. We have a three-headed dog chained up inside where there are hundreds of students, maybe even thousands of students, most of which have absolutely no idea that Fluffy is even there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the point I wanted to bring up is that there is a tie back here to Greek mythology. And I think we're going to touch on this a couple of times throughout the discussion. And that is for Cerberus. And Cerberus was a three-headed dog that guarded the underworld. And I thought really strong connection here because Fluffy is a three-headed dog that is guarding a trap door to essentially what is the underworld of Hogwarts. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hagrid names him Fluffy to normalize three-headed dogs, right? Because, I mean, (laughs) that thing is terrifying. And to your point, Mike, I mean, this this thing would have eaten all of the students if it was off the leash. Yeah. I mean, what does it eat? What does Hagrid feed it? You know, you don't see him dragging, like, goats or anything, like, all the way through the halls. Probably some steaks. Don't we see at one point Hagrid like walking into the school with steaks or something? Am I I imagining this? I think I think he he's got a steak over his eye uh, when he gets beaten up by Grob, and Mm -hmm. he definitely walks around with dead chickens in the next book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. This also reminds me when I was a kid. I think I've mentioned this before. Hallmark used to have some of the best Harry Potter merchandise in the very, very early days. They really did. Yeah. And they had a fluffy that you could put on your floor and was motion activated. So if you turned it on and somebody walked by it, the dog would start barking. And <laughs> it was sitting in front of the trap door. It was so cool. I might still have it. I need to see if I do. But I loved having that as a kid. I felt like I had my own alarm system for my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like, too, this is another example of Hogwarts being a security nightmare. And it can be a really scary place. Like, who thought it was a great idea to be like, yeah, let's bring this three-headed vicious dog into a school where there's a bunch of children running around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, Dumbledore said, 
uh, it's off limits. If you if you definitely want to make sure kids don't go somewhere, tell them not to go somewhere. Right. Yeah. Like the Forbidden Forest, too. Like, don't go there. Oh. <laughs> off limits. <laughs> oh, you got your head bitten off? Well, I told you not to go down there. Yeah. What did you expect? You want to go and try yeah. find eternal life? Well, you're going to die. <laughs> and you know what honorable mention to that scene as well where harry comes across you know he doesn't know quarrel but i guess voldemort drinking the unicorn blood like that is that's horrifying that's something else that i think is highly reminiscent of horror themes this idea of something so demonic you know tainting something super pure um, and sucking the life out of it. And there's, I have an example to bring up about that later, but that's actually a really good call out. I'm glad you remembered that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Reminds me of vampires too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And vampires are scary. What are they doing in Harry Potter? Like, not they're, much. They're attending slug club parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And trying to like, like charm the students. <laughs> into following them away somewhere. Yeah. So let's move on. I think that it's it's just possible as our discussion continues that we'll all come to an agreement that Chamber of Secrets is actually the scariest Harry Potter book. I could agree with that. Yeah. yeah. We'll find There's out. There's a lot going on here. Chamber of Secrets gets its due. We've always talked about these last couple of episodes. It's I know I mentioned last week it's kind of our our bastard book of the series, but now it finally gets some of the spotlight. I mean, if we're if we're keeping in the theme of big gigantic beasts or the the forbidden forest, it doesn't get any worse than Aragog. Like Aragog, I'm not particularly arachnophobic. I I don't love spiders, but like I'll coexist because they eat you know other bugs. But the idea that Aragog is supposed to help Harry and Ron, and they sort of trust him to do so because he's Hagrid's friend, but then Aragog turns around and says, <laughs> actually, we don't harm Hagrid. Those rules only apply to Hagrid, but we're going to eat you now. Like, awful, right? It's betrayal at the worst level by a giant spider who's like a killer spider. Not to mention, they're only in this situation because Hagrid, you know, made a good faith effort to take care of Aragog and, you know, keep him alive so that he could grow up to be this forest-dwelling creature that, you know, later tries to kill his friends. Exactly. For me, the the creepiest part of that whole encounter wasn't necessarily Aragog, although he's certainly intimidating. It is all of his children that are chasing after Harry. <laughs> and if you are arachnophobic, this is definitely a scene that is going to freak you out, whether you're reading the book or watching the movie. That scene is really, I remember that the spiders get a specific call out in the MPAA reading of a rating of the Chamber of Secrets. It's like scary, rated P, rated PG for, um, yeah, something about spooky creatures or something like that. Yeah, I'm looking at the MPAA rating now. It calls out some creature violence. Ooh. Creature violence. That's what it is. Aragog is not the only giant beast no. in this book that tries to kill our heroes. Well, no, and, and he takes the fall for this next one, and it's the reason why he's got to be cooped up in the forest, and and that's the basilisk. There's this terrifying monster that is slithering through the pipe system of Hogwarts, and it's attacking students based on their blood status. How much creepier can you get in in the second book of this series? <laughs> mm-hmm. All these students are seeing their classmates 
four of their classmates, plus nearly headless Nick, plus Mrs. Norris, like her or not, get petrified. And that has to be horrifying. So to me, the Basilisk really brings to life this spooky legend of the Chamber of Secrets. And, and that's something, obviously, that pervades throughout the course of the book. We're, we're trying to solve this mystery. What is the Chamber of Secrets? Where is the Chamber of Secrets? Who opened it? And uh, kind of similar to what we talked about with Fluffy, this does also have some origins in Greek mythology. The Basilisk is very similar to Medusa and the Gorgons, who would turn their foes to stone just with a simple gaze. And the basilisk also does have its own origins in Greek mythology, but it's it's like they're all part of one big snake family here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say the basilisk is scarier than Aragog for me, just because I'm not a snake person. Spiders I can deal with. Snakes, oh no. Because they can pounce at you, they can bite you and kill you. And then you factor in that this one's slithering around the school underground and is giant. This thing's the worst. You know, I I actually, and this is oh here we go. You're you're gonna Laura be, love snakes. Yeah, yeah. I knew you were gonna be like, oh god, of course. I actually really <laughs> like snakes and spiders. I think they're cool. That said, you know, the basilisk basilisk is terrifying because it's a giant snake, and it has mm-hmm. one mission in life, and that is. To kill people based on blood status. That is terrifying. But I also wanted to highlight that a lot of the imagery that we get around the basilisk's activity is really frightening. Like the spiders fleeing the school, like the fact that you're constantly seeing these references to lines of spiders leaving Hogwarts. Um, the fact that you have like the strangled rooster imagery, like Ginny's literally going around and strangling roosters and doesn't know yeah. it. Um, that is really macabre. And then you have the mandrakes. Like, think about the fact that in the beginning when we see them, they're literally like plant babies, right? Like, they scream and cry. (laughs) And then later on, they get made into an antidote and make of that what you will. But it's really creepy when you think about it. Like, I'm supposing (laughs) that the mandrakes are no more after the cure is made. <laughs> yes. chopped out. Professor Sprout is like your axe murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, are you the type of person who would pull a Britney Spears and put a snake around her neck? I mean, I would hold... I have held a snake. Ugh, okay. She just called it holding a snake. That's how normal it is for Laura to yeah. put a snake around her <laughs> Well, I mean, obviously... I have a pet snake, in not fact. Not a venomous one. How about a basilisk? <laughs> uh, no. There's a... There's something about snakes. For me, it's, um, (laughs) I agree there's something about snakes. For me, it's definitely the eyes turning you into stone or killing you because you can't control where where you look or to pay for a look with the rest of your life. Horrifying. Like when Moaning Myrtle describes her own death, uh, I know she's doing it like gleefully, but still that that scared me. That actually, like when I was reading it in the book, that, that scared me. And also your blood status is something you can't control. You're born with it. So the idea that you have no recourse or no special protection and, and you know, Hermione discovers it, but still gets petrified and is out of commission. Um, that's terrifying. So again, like something's haunting you and you, if you're muggle-born and you can't stop it or have any way of controlling it or know what it is or where it's lurking, 
yeah, that's that's peak horror, everybody. Like those are all the elements. Right. And it's it's interesting that J.K. Rowling was able to kind of take the effect down a notch by introducing petrifying because all of these individuals that end up needing the mandrake treatment, they all see the basilisk through some other medium. They don't come face to face with it. So like in Greek mythology, Perseus is able to cut off Medusa's head because you know, he's able to kind of stun her with, with a shield. Uh, yeah. And, and yet nobody goes that far because we know Harry ends up killing the basilisk in by having Fox gouge its eyes out, which by the way, like that whole fight scene too is, it's pretty intense. Like Harry's going toe to toe with, with this really scary monster um, and needs <laughs> some assistance in order to uh, come away with the win. But um, I agree. I, I think this is probably the most scary of any of the creatures in the Harry Potter series that Harry comes face to face with. I think I'd agree with that. Same. So this next one from Chamber is not a joke, I promise. Um, <laughs> like, honestly, though, Gilderoy Lockhart, can we talk about how terrifying... <laughs> Gilderoy Lockhart is as a character. And I'm not talking about me. I mean, his ineptitude is, is a big deal, right? Like this teacher who's just complete garbage and can't handle a basic like spell is being put in charge to, to teach you terrifying, like bad teachers, terrifying. But if you really think about it, all the stuff that he said he's done were in fact done by someone else. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but because the one thing he is good at is memory charms. Those people don't remember that they did the things that they did. And I'm just getting really into the weeds as far as put yourself in those, that person's shoes, right? Like one of his victims and your, your sense of identity, your sense of self is completely stripped. You'll never know that you did the cool thing. You probably might even sickly be a Gilderoy Lockhart fanboy. If you come across and you're like, oh, wow, that guy does a lot of cool stuff. You would never know that it was you. And that, there are fates worse than death. And I think loss of identity or significant memory loss is probably one of them. Yeah. He's scary in a different way. Not in the classic (laughs) Halloween way. He's scary in a, this guy is dangerous and evil way. Yeah. So uh, that definitely deserves a shout out, but perhaps, I mean, another person again, it's Voldemort, but Tom Riddle, young Tom Riddle in chamber of secrets, his possession of Ginny Weasley. And we mentioned mm-hmm. Ginny's going around strangling roosters like that happens, but it's Riddle that is sort of possessing her. He's a 16-year-old teenager making himself at home in the mind of an 11-year-old, taking control of her body, doing things with that body without her knowledge. It's as scary as it gets. She has no agency. And Tom Riddle, you know, in his interactions with Harry even, is just shown to be so malicious and hateful. And is definitely a bad egg. Like he, you know, young Tom Riddle is a scarier villain than adult Voldemort in any of the books, I would argue. Well, yeah, we're getting him at sort of like his peak in a way. Like we're seeing the version of Voldemort that was able to convince Slughorn to tell him about Horcruxes. Yeah. Right. And like he's he's young and he's handsome and he's very manipulative and very persuasive. And he makes, 
you know, a young Jenny Weasley, who's someone who's, you know, like all of us do going through that really confusing time in early adolescence. And he's, he's like capitalizing on that. And that is horrifying. Um, there's, there's also just a, a really common horror theme here, which is the idea of women losing their agency. Um, mm-hmm. So an example that this made me think of actually was from Dracula um, when Lucy Westenra, um, she's actually prone to sleepwalking. And Dracula takes total advantage of this and uses her as a walking blood bank until oh. he literally like bleeds her dry and she dies. Oh, wow. Damn. So it, I mean, it eventually kills her. And we see sort of at the climax of Chamber of Secrets, Ginny's on the verge of death because yeah. Voldemort's or Tom Riddle has been like slowly pouring his soul into her in order to use her. And now he's gaining his own strength so he can take hers. Yeah. He's sapping her life force. It gets very Dracula. Mm hmm. Do you think this one in particular is is something you recognize a little bit later on as opposed to while you're reading it maybe the first time? Certainly, it's scary. But in terms of his overall possession of Ginny, we don't really get to see a lot of what Ginny does from from a reader's perspective. But I think mm-hmm. th- this may just be me, but kind of looking back on it a little as a, a little bit older, you tend to see this as a bit scarier of a moment than maybe you did when you're 11 or 12 years old. Agreed. Or the the context is a little bit different. Yeah, yeah. And it's happening in the background, like you said. Like, like we just find out, oh, it was Ginny all this time. But then when you really think about the implications, that's what gets, like, scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, you can take it to an even, you know, a further level, like, outside of just horror fiction and think about an older man taking advantage of a young girl and manipulating her to do what he wants. Well, and this is, this is is internet culture. This is what our parents worried about when about chat rooms, right? This is, this is exactly sort of that older stranger who does not have your best interest is going to catfish you and then cause you harm. It's a spooky boogeyman that you can't see. Tom Riddle is like the ultimate. What is it? What's that show to catch a predator? <laughs> Tom, take a seat right over there. Right yeah. over there, Tom. <laughs> Tom, I, have a seat. We just, didn't we talk about how he's on Cameo, Chris Hansen? Yes. Yeah, you can get him to. Oh, my God. We need that for. Let's for do Tom that Riddle. and have him address Tom Riddle. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. no, man. we have to do it. We okay, actually have done. to do that. It's done. Okay. Cameo.com. So drive us home, Andrew. You had what I think is the scariest part of Chamber of Secrets. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, I wanted to call out Dobby. That (laughs) little guy would freak out anybody in real life. Just imagine him walking into your room right now. That would freak you out if you did not know what a house elf was. Um, And I mean, really, any mythical creature in the Harry Potter series is going to freak out muggles because... You just don't see these things and they don't talk to you normally. They're not human. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Dobby would be absolutely terrifying. Until you spoke to him. And like, yeah, he's cute, but he's also nightmare fuel. Nightmare fuel? Really? Okay, you know and love Dobby. But imagine if you didn't know anything about house elves. And one came walking in and said, give me a sock. (laughs) (laughs) Or else. 
<laughs> it, it turns out fear of socks is something Andrew suffers from greatly. Fear, right. fear, of, fear of loss of socks. Like he's like, no, that's mine. Darn it. <laughs> and, you know, honorable mention, since we're doing that, um, all the racism and uh, classism that comes uh, that house elves face. That's scary. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. So. And and I think too, just to kind of wrap up Chamber of Secrets, mentioned earlier the whole blood status element yeah. of of this book. This I know we do have Hermione referred to as as a mudblood in Sorcerer's Stone, but this is really where we start to see more of just how divided a lot of the wizarding world is as it relates to blood status, because you have a monster within the school that is targeting students specifically based upon who they are, right? And and whether they're pure blood or not. So we know that these themes will continue to come up and and have played a role in in wizarding history as well. Yeah, and I, there's a precedent for that sort of theme to exist here alongside the horror themes because when you read any kind of horror fiction, so much of it is a critique on the culture and the society and the ruling powers. So it's actually not out of place for themes of like racism and classism to run parallel to horror. Definitely. So moving on to Prisoner of Azkaban, a book for which most of the time there is a deranged, like multiple murderer, a serial killer on the loose tracking Harry. That's what we're told. The whole book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you want horror, here you go. You have a serial killer who's on the loose. <laughs> Mass murderer. What more Mass, could you ask for? That snake was nothing. Yeah. I mean, here's a person who was Voldemort's right hand man, according to people. This is horrifying. Yeah. Not not only that, but the the death omens that exist throughout the course of Prisoner of Azkaban that are we learn eventually tied to Sirius Black, but Harry, even very early on, right? And and when he runs away from Privet Drive, he sees the Grim for the first time. And the Grim is a black dog, uh demonic entity that is said to be primarily in the folklore of of the UK. And it's this nocturnal apparition in some cases, it's a shapeshifter, and it's often said to be associated with the devil or described as a ghost or a supernatural hellhound. And Harry is seeing this throughout his third year, and he's told by Trelawney it's an omen of his own death. So, <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. There's a there's literally a teacher at Hogwarts who says, "By the way, you're gonna you're die. gonna die. You're gonna yeah. die." <laughs> Think about the just the tone of this. Uh, <laughs> this story and and Laura, you're a really great um, kind of comparison to a Sherlock Holmes novel. Yeah, it really reminds me of the Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, this you know, this is obviously not the only literary example, but it's just one thing that we can lean on to remind ourselves that culturally, the idea of a hellhound is something that you know, has permeated our stories for a very long time. And the Grimm, you know, is a representation of something of a very real cultural fear. Mm-hmm. I thought all dogs went to heaven. Not the hellhound. No, not, not <laughs> fluffy and not the, uh, the Grimm. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, 
No, it's funny because in the only All Dogs Go to Heaven movie I've seen is the second one, and the cats are the ones that rule the underworld. The devil character is like a, a giant red cat, like Clifford, but cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree that that is terrifying, and all of these omens... In fact, book three just has a lot of themes that are very depressing, like the Grimm. Yeah. Also, Dementors. I mean, these guardians of Azkaban prison are not where they should be. They are at Hogwarts now because of the threat to Hogwarts. And their literal existence is to sap happiness out of the atmosphere. And they're actually, not only that, but they're feeding on it. Like, where does the happiness go? It's in their stomachs. Imagine such a a vile creature and certain characters in the book are saying this. I think it's Molly too. It's just like, this is the, this is like an abomination. These, these creatures that, they exist. Yeah, I would argue that the Dementors are probably one of the scariest creatures in the Harry Potter series because of the fact that they can uh, suck your soul out, effectively making you dead in a way. And there's no yeah. cure for this, is there? I mean, no. you know, the Basilisk, you, you make eye contact with it, Madame Pomfrey can fix you up. Or, uh, you know, the spiders, they're just scary. Lockhart, He's just a dweeb. Fluffy, well, okay, he might bite your head off. That's a problem. But the Dementors, they, I mean, they ruin your life. And they are just terrifying figures. So that's why I think they're some of the scariest. You know what it kind of reminds me of? And I don't want to get, I don't want to dwell on this too much because it's our lives right now. But like the (laughs) Dementors, you know, they are a representation of depression and in the book, they're they're not really so much serving the purpose of keeping Sirius Black out of the castle because clearly he gets in, but they tend to serve the purpose of keeping the students in and like keeping them closed off from the outside world in a way that's very different from just like having rules about not being able to leave the bounds of the grounds, right? And I think all of us, having spent the last seven months, you know, quarantining because of this pandemic, I think that that's a feeling that everyone can identify with at this point. You know, being cooped up can manifest itself in depression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what goes hand in hand with depression? Well, fear. We also have Bogarts. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is the year where we learn and I, I think this is where it was was the source material, but like the creature in your closet or the thing under your bed, right? Like that we are all scared of growing up. I know I had one. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely that's a boggart. Now, J.K. Rowling has turned it into an actual magical creature that its whole goal is to scare you and become the thing you fear the most. Like book right. three is very extra with just this foreboding and ominous like death stuff yeah which is amazing because it's so many people's favorite books for the exact (laughs) opposite reason because of the marauders (laughs) and and all the animagi and and just maybe the time turners yeah maybe the time turners but yeah and it's it's almost comical in a way though too because the grim ends up being snuffles at the end of the day like it's like it's yeah. just very like <laughs> like laura was talking about cuddling with uh dougal on the last episode like you would want to cuddle with something called snuffles right but meanwhile this whole yeah. thing 
or sorry, this this entire time in Prisoner of Azkaban, Harry is is just completely on edge because he's seeing the Grim constantly, but yet he doesn't know that it's oh, it's his it's his godfather. No big deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to really drive this home, I mean, uh, you know, I think when we're talking about it sort of in the abstract and when you're reading the book, it can seem a little bit silly to be like, oh, why would you be afraid of a black dog? Black dogs and cats tend to have a harder time being adopted in the real world because of people's oh. superstitions. Yeah, it's sad. So it really does impact us. Something Micah said that was really interesting, again, about how you know we tend to think of book three, like the reasons people love it are for the light moments, kind of really just I'm, I'm stewing on that and thinking about how well balanced it all was, really. Yeah. Um, Andrew, you're saying that it's it's the scariest of of any of the films. I mean, my personal moment in so. that in that movie, that poor bird that gets killed every single time it flies by the Whomping Willow. <laughs> <laughs> and let's not forget about the Whomping Willow. That thing's pretty terrifying. I know we get to see it in Chamber of Secrets, but but in Prisoner of Azkaban too. I mean, it, it attacks Harry and, and Hermione. Yeah, yeah, that'd be like getting hit by a car. I mean, that thing is powerful. Yeah, a car that's aiming for you, too. Yeah, right. We also get the <laughs> Shrieking know. Shack, the, the the lore behind that. Yeah, and, and werewolves. House. I mean, yeah, werewolves. Mentioned, a lot of stuff in, mentioned in that book. So uh, moving on to Goblet of Fire. And again, speaking about balance, the book opens with this amazing worldwide sporting event. It's like real, real cool. And I guess, I guess there's also the scene with um, the Weasley twins engorging uh, Dudley's tongue. So that's kind of scary. But no, the sporting event, you know, you get this really cool Quidditch World Cup. You learn a lot about these other cultures, but it is immediately like all your excitement. Harry wakes up in the middle of the night and Death Eaters are wreaking mm-hmm. havoc. And so this is a this is a comment from from Meg. She says the movie created the KKK parallel with the pointed hoods. But even before that, when I first read this at age eight, I was very scared by what they were doing to the Roberts family, the muggles. I would think I was in a nightmare if I woke up and strange men were lighting fires and pointing wands at me that suspended me above them. I think they even spin the youngest kid around so fast that Harry thinks he's going to get sick or his head will pop off. When I was first reading the HP books and the Death Eaters are torturing the Muggle family, I remember feeling genuine stomach twisty unease. Yeah, yeah, because this is a direct parallel to things that we've seen happen in the real world. I think Meg's completely mm-hmm. right here. And I think yeah. what also makes it scary and sad is that these Muggles are so innocent, as are many wizards, of course, but it's just like, the Muggles didn't want any part of this wizarding world. No, they just and, have land that somebody else wants to use. Yeah. And that's their big, like, it's played for jokes. But again, the memory charms that are put mm-hmm. on the Roberts family, they don't even know what year it is. You know, yeah. like, terrible um, stuff. Yeah, really, really bad stuff. And I think, I think so in that way, we're shown how not innocent wizards are, like, mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. I think Laura raises a really great point, though. This is one of the first times that we're really able, maybe as a reader, to identify with the fear of uh, of what we're reading. And, you know, we're looking at the Roberts family, and even Meg notes this, like we are the Roberts family. So, I, I think that adds a different layer of it to the, the whole conversation. and. 
yeah, I, I also think now the just these moments are starting to get a little bit more real in in terms of why we as a reader would be afraid of them. I mean, we start out with things like Fluffy and you know uh, the Basilisk and and the Grim. They're a little bit more fictional in nature. Now we're at a point where we're seeing things that are a little bit more adult in nature. Yeah, I mean, Voldemort is kind of scary, but the idea that any other human would follow Voldemort and pledge their life to his cause, not only that, but that there's a group of them staging a demonstration. And this is before he's back. This is before he actually has a body and is walking and talking. All of his supporters just decide that it's been so long since they've had like a, a you know, a, a, a Moore's Mordra in the sky. And so they, they just make it happen. Like, that's terrifying. Bored Death Eaters, bored terrorists are terrifying. The next item is uh, actually later on in the book, the Madness of Mr. Crouch chapter. And Barty Crouch Sr. kind of gets a bad deal through this whole book but he's slowly like i tend to not care as much because it's all about the percy stuff right like percy is always going on and on about mr crouch that i tend to like ignore the whole scene but mr crouch is losing his mind and at the end of the book harry comes face to face with him and he's exhibiting all these delusions he's talking to a tree he's um having moments of lucidity grabbing at harry he's drooling babbling about something awful being his fault. We don't know what it is. You know, like Mr. Crouch didn't used to lose his shit. Like he was, he was a, he was a pillar of the community. He was somebody you could count on, but now here he is in the forbidden forest, you know, very drained near death. And to see a powerful man or a powerful person just fall from grace into madness is mm-hmm. like next level realism. Like you're saying, Micah, like this is this is a human being sanity that we've seen slowly ebb away or we're seeing it just be gone. Right. And speaking of realism, I think this is scary because it may remind you of a family member who's losing it. Oh, I don't yeah. mean losing it over their politics, but like dementia <laughs> or other illnesses to someone you're seeing fade away over time. It's one of the worst things that you can see. Absolutely. And, and it's a, Eric, you, when you were saying about you know, they're kind of slowly drifting away. It's reminiscent. It may even be a precursor to the scene in Half-Blood Prince with with Dumbledore when he's drinking the potion. Um, that's a horrifying scene. I know we're going to oh, talk about yes, it. Yes, it is. Well, and, and, and this is, if I'm remembering correctly, it's the result of an Imperious curse gone wrong that he just doesn't know where he is anymore. Like the unforgivable curses being, uh, you know, brought up and introduced in this book, the idea that you can be- truly literally bend someone's will to be your own with Imperius is also next level terrifying. So there's that. And then also the, the just the fact that his body is transformed into a bone and hidden. It's buried. Um, you know, that is not, that's the desecration of a corpse. Like that's kind of someone's, that could be a worst fear. Like I have a, I have a fear of like never just be gone, going missing and never being discovered. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but of course, we hinted at it earlier. And this is the book where Voldemort comes back. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Wormtail cutting off his hand. I mean, severing a limb. That's just take any of these and put them into the real world. And all of them are actually the most terrifying things on the planet. That's right. <laughs> it's pretty funny in hindsight, thinking back 
And like now that we're focusing on the scary moments, it's like, wow, as kids, um, this would be quite terrifying to read. I don't personally remember being very spooked by any of this stuff, but I don't know. Just looking back, it seems like I should have been more than I was. (laughs) Well, I think that kind of goes to the point Micah brought up earlier. You know, as you as you get older, you understand the implications um, further. It's kind of like when you watch your favorite childhood cartoon as an adult and you catch on to the adult themes and the adult humor. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. and let's not forget, like Harry is participating in a tournament where people die. So that's probably pretty (laughs) scary for him, I would think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's the unwitting participant in this ritual to give Voldemort a proper body. Like the whole whatever Voldemort, whatever baby Voldemort we call it is, like that gets put into the cauldron. That's scary. We see black magic really like being performed. It's all just, it's all very next level. Like these these books are very much getting progressively even worse. <laughs> Yeah, and Horror-wise. Moody too. Like Andrew talked about, imagine you open up your bedroom and and Dobby was on your bed. Imagine if Moody was on your bed. <laughs> I'd be like, hey, want to cuddle? Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> I think that that's also an interest. Moody's an interesting theme to bring up too, because he's somebody who, you know, gains Harry's trust by being somebody that he's not. Yeah, You could make an argument that as Harry Potter fans, you can have similar feelings about the author nowadays. So, Yeah, like a false sense of trust. You know, Harry's going to go anywhere in the hedge with Barty. Um, He doesn't know it because he thinks he's moody. Probably a ton of movies and stories in, in the horror genre that you could make that comparison to as well, where you don't know that the person that you're entrusting is really a werewolf or really a vampire, or really the killer at the end of the day. Yeah, the ghost face killer. Exactly. Yeah. Moving on to Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, the longest book in the Harry Potter series. What kind of scary stuff do we have for, for this one? Umbridge. That, that's yeah. my vote for Order of the Phoenix. <laughs> it, talking about different types of scary, she's definitely yeah. up there. I know she's frustrating too as as a reader, but she's certainly scary because there's just no accountability for her. She does what she wants. Sounds like somebody else I know. And the big question is, what will she do next? You just never know. How is she going to ruin this school further? And she's in it for herself. More, More than anything else about Umbridge that I fear is somebody who just is taking the advantage of a bad situation. There's this opening at Hogwarts. There's this ministry who's a little bit power hungry, who wants to discredit Dumbledore. And they use this opportunity to show their authority. And basically, like, she sent the Dementors after Harry. She didn't even give him a fair shake. She wanted his him out of the picture um, from the get-go because she's an opportunist. And she wanted to you know, cry over his corpse and say, oh, that's so terrible. And this is why the ministry needs to have more power so we can prevent these things from happening. Um, you know, that's the worst kind of a person. Absolutely. And- yeah, she's she's scary because she's real. There are yeah. people like her everywhere. She's not hiding behind somebody else in, in polyjuice form. As Laura said, <laughs> she is who she is. And here I am. It It's also worth mentioning... I, that 
she physically harms the students. That is scary just in and of itself, right? She gives Harry the only other scar he's ever had to our knowledge. That stays on him for the rest of his life. Just like all those pigeon scars from when they pecked him when he was a baby. You know, he's afraid of pigeons. That was a bad cursed child reference. Anyway, (laughs) uh, (laughs) there's, oh, we learn about Thestrals in this book, don't we? I guess that's technically like, yeah, that's in this book. So yeah, the idea that because you've seen someone die and the emotional impact makes you separate, right? Makes you an outsider. This whole Luna and Harry um, relating to one another because they are different, because they're marked. Like, what a way to literally make something that is emotional or psychological into a real fact by having these beasts that can only be seen if you have that in common, that macabre death thing. I'm going to disagree on this one. I don't think they're very scary. I, I They might be scary to somebody who can't see them, but otherwise... Mm. I don't think they're very spooky. I mean, I, it's a uniter. But like, but like the reality of them, right? Like just the idea that you have to have seen someone die to see them. Yeah. yeah. I, I think what Eric's picking up on here is the idea of othering, which is, again, another really common horror theme where there is something that others you from the rest of your social group or your society or what have you. Oh, and like we get out. Yeah. Like we, we see this reflected in people like Harry, Luna and Neville who are kind of like the oddballs out in the class or in the school who can see these things. And I think it's reflective of, you know, young children who've had to deal with death far earlier than they should have. Yeah. And how they're present and how they're treated in society. And speaking of children, just wrapping up Order of the Phoenix here, there's this death eater who gets his head in the case of the, the time turners and it de-ages him. Um, again, talking about body horror, but also empathy. Here's what Meg has to say. There's this theory that it's still the little guy's, or it's still the guy's mind, but just with a baby head. But I dispute that. The baby is crying and flailing its limbs. If it were still a full-grown man's mind in there, he wouldn't be stumbling around. This is a baby mind, new to the world, but not in the proper body for its age. Babies have small bodies out of proportion to their heads for a reason. It's evolution's choice for how young humans learn to move over many years, unlike animals and giraffes that can stand right after birth. An infant in a six-foot body, full of muscle it can't control, and totally off balance with no gross motor skills and definitely no fine motor skills, is frankly an abomination against nature. Yeah, this always always creeped me out. This always creeped me out, the, the Death Eater baby. I felt really bad for um, the man that, that it used to be, even though it's a Death Eater. It's like the worst kind of person, but that is an abomination against nature. I, I said yeah. this during chapter by chapter. I don't feel bad at all. I yeah. was shocked for, uh, over the sympathy. Like, this person was a Death Eater. Yeah, I but know. I think what uh, Meg picks up on a really important theme here, which is the idea of an abomination against nature. That's, again, another really common horror theme. Look at something like Frankenstein, for example. I mean, you have the theme of, um, and I mean, th- this could be argued, certainly, uh, and I'd be happy to have the conversation about it with anyone who wanted to. But you have, you know, you have Victor Frankenstein, who's literally taken the ability to create life. And in the context of that novel, 
I would argue that that would be considered an abomination of nature, that a man is trying to take the one thing that a woman can do that he can't. And Mm. what he creates is, you know, we see the results in the novel, right? So um, I, I think that that is a really good call out. Well, and if, and if we can't fix it, right, because all the time turners get destroyed, except for a prototype <laughs> yeah. here and there. He's just uh, stuck. Yeah. He's just stuck. So, so 30 years from now, like that baby is going to grow to adulthood and have a really old body. Um, you know, it's just, it's the longer you think about it, I think the scarier it gets. One other thing before you jump, sorry, Eric, uh, yeah. that, that I did want to bring up because I do think it was scary from a reader perspective. And, and that is, the entire fight that takes place within the ministry itself, within the Department of Mysteries, because all of these kids get so banged up. Like Hermione yeah. at one point, we don't know if she's dead or not, right? There's right? that there's that brief moment where she gets hit with the curse and we don't know whether or not she's alive. Like Luna gets messed up. Neville gets messed up. Ron has his brain attack him. We don't know what the long lasting effects of that are. And not to mention they're going up against adult Death Eaters. Uh, and the last thing I'll just say, because I got yelled at for leaving it off my top seven moments of Order of the Phoenix, serious. <laughs> and the fact that he is killed, this is the first major character death for us in the series outside of Cedric. Sorry, Cedric, but serious in the grand scheme means more to Harry. So uh, I, I think it's definitely worth calling that out as, as being a scary moment for the reader, uh, as well as an emotional one. For sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, Frankenstein just then, Laura, because moving on with the theory of, uh, or the theme of reanimated corpses, book six introduces the inferi, 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 inferi. Yeah. tomato, tomato, bunch of fairies, <laughs> the inferi, um, the, 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 you know, these reanimated corpses and, and here's something Meg said, the conventional zombie does not scare me. I understand they're supposed to be dead people and now they just want brains. But something about the way they walk and groan makes them feel more like living people who aren't dead, just possessed or cannibals. In the cave scene, however, in Half-Blood Prince, my brain immediately believes that these are corpses, probably because they're pale and fleshy and motionless in the dark water until they are called upon. Anytime you look at a body of water, just imagine layers and layers of decaying corpses beneath it. It's highly unsettling. I agree with that. These aren't yeah. the traditional zombies. Because of the cave scene this is kind of an aside but i feel like the walking dead is normalizing zombies and i know half-blood prince came out before the walking dead but i i feel like zombies have gotten less scary over time because the walking dead it's like wow there's like 10 seasons of this and two (laughs) spinoffs and we get it zombies are ruling the world i completely agree with you i think there's a a law of diminishing returns as far as every season of the walking dead that's on tv zombies and the zeitgeist are less terrifying yeah Yeah. i I may be misremembering this, but isn't it also the case that Voldemort is responsible for the deaths of all these people? Because if that's true, that makes it even worse. Yes. I think, I mean, it's not just that a bunch of people were tourists and they died in that cave. I think Voldemort took his victims and put them there as sentries to guard his Horcrux. So these are literally Voldemort's victims that are the inferi we meet. Well, and I'm also just reading that Grindelwald uh, created in fairy as well. Oh. He wanted to make an army of them. Yeah. A quick that aside. seems so unlike Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
does it. Um, a, a quick aside here. I want to say for anybody who's got a little bit of a zombie fatigue, I would recommend watching Train to Busan. It's a really good zombie movie. Um, and I, I think it's a very fresh interpretation on the idea. So definitely check that out. Um, but I remember back in the day when we were first reading about Inferi, really being freaked out about the idea that we would eventually see characters that we knew become mm-hmm. Inferi, like that Voldemort would kill them and add them to his Inferi army. Why didn't we see that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that would have been really horrifying. Or maybe like we he- did and we just don't know. Like oh, maybe. God. Maybe yeah. it's kind of like once they're transformed, their features just sort of fade away. Because doesn't he see like Stan Shunpike under the Imperius Curse or something weird like that? Like imagine if that were like a dead corpse Stan Shunpike that's like mm-hmm. leaning over Harry. Like, come on, that's horrible. But that's the reality of what J.K. Rowling is asking us to accept that it, that wizards can do this to people. And I mean, talk about, again, the lack of agency, but these are dead bodies that never received a proper burial. Um, these these are people. These were human beings once, and dark magic has twisted that. So it's it's very just horrifying. I feel like any discussion of Half Blood Prince and how it's scary should, in some part, talk about Inferi. But there's there's other stuff, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and I was just reading uh, that there's a good chance that Regulus Black was amongst those Inferi inside the Ooh, cave. Yeah, that's a good call out. Yeah. So that's kind of creepy. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say really the theme of the entire book, which is which is Horcruxes, if that doesn't mm-hmm. scare you, I don't know what will. And uh, <laughs> we learn a lot, obviously, about them. We learn uh, from, from Slughorn and his unmodified memory that uh, he basically provided validation for what Voldemort ultimately decided to do or what tom riddle i should say ultimately decided to do in splitting his soul and this really sets up the rest of the story and it's horrifying to think not only did voldemort kill all those people but he ripped his own soul seven times in order to preserve himself yeah and 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 talk about mastery over death and laura again with your with your frankenstein trying to bend the rules of nature, right? Like this is something that, that is not reserved for man. This is something God alone should be able to do. Any God, whatever God you believe in. And the Horcrux thing is that same way. It's man's ego and hubris. And I'm going to master death, all of that in, into a mechanized, you know, all of these various Horcruxes, physical containers for something that you have, no, you know, way of meddling in or no, no right to meddle in. And that's what Voldemort does. And it involves killing people to do it. Right. And just think about Dumbledore and the torture he goes through. First, it's with, you know, his hand um, or, or sorry, first it's with the drink that he takes here. You know, it's just that, that scene, you know, seeing Dumbledore slide into just complete, you know, it, it, I wouldn't say it's dementia, but it's close to it, right? Like he is, yeah. he is reliving some extremely painful, dark moment in his life. Uh, we're presumed now to think that it, it was back, you know, when his sister was was murdered. But uh, you know, it's just, it's just terrible to see a character that we know to be so powerful be such in such a weakened state, uh, 
and and to go through that that horrifying experience and just on the again on the horcrux piece the, the the whole slughorn memory reminded me of like the big reveal in a horror movie where you finally get to know either who the killer is or or how the how the killer went about doing what it what oh, it is that yeah he or she did in order to get to where we are in the plot now and and like i said it now sets up the rest of of the series we know harry has to go out there and defeat and destroy all these horcruxes yeah i mean slughorn didn't exactly tell him like the spell that needed to be done i doubt slughorn even knew it but he definitely set voldemort on the right path like voldemort had to take the initiative and actually survive making a horcrux so a little bit of credit where it's due there but somebody like snug slughorn who is innocently giving the crucial puzzle piece to and I, i believe it was mostly innocent right he was being manipulated but he felt that this he you know ensured that it was for academic purposes only gives the information that terrifies me because we can never be truly uh we can't control the repercussions of something we say to somebody we can control whether or not we say it but ultimately once it's out in the universe what somebody else does with that information um is 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 theirs but it's not like divorced from us so slughorn has the responsibility and feels responsible for everything Voldemort does later in life with murdering and the Horcruxes. And that's why he goes in the run. But, you know, it, it, the initial moment was innocent enough. And that's terrifying because you can't really prevent against that. And then just to wrap up uh, Half-Blood Prince, uh, one of the moments, at least for me, that, that was extremely terrifying in the films was when uh, Katie Bell gets attacked by the cursed necklace and she's, she's lifted up into the air and she's kind of being tossed around. It it was like a scene out of the exorcist almost. It was very terrifying and she's screaming and, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. the kids are freaked out. And I think I agree with you with the way she's being thrust about in the air. It was very spooky. Uh, Like like tossed like a rag doll. Not forget too, I mean, Ron almost dies in Half-Blood Prince as well. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of... That's peak comedy. Horrible moments uh, in Half-Blood Prince. But Draco finally achieves in, in his goal and gets the Death Eaters into Hogwarts. I'm assuming people were scared reading the fact that there were Death Eaters running around Hogwarts and then, you know, Dumbledore mm-hmm. falls off the uh, Tower of Terror. Dumbledore's falling tower of terror something like that lightning <laughs> Dumbledore's astronomy tower of terror that's <laughs> <Right>. it <laughs> all right well bringing the discussion home what were the terrifying and or scary or creepy moments in deathly hollows i'll go first Bethilda bagshot this mm-hmm. is yeah. crazy it's another reanimated corpse how long has she been dead we don't know it's long enough that she smells weird and her skin is decaying visibly. And then to learn not only is she dead, but still moving around, but there's a giant snake inside her. I mean, just imagine Nagini's head nestled in Bathilda Bagshot's throat and the rest of her serpentine body coiled up in the empty cavity of where Bathilda's organs used to be. Like, it just, if you think about how this sort of thing happens, the level of murder and desecration that has to occur to get Nagini into Bathilda's body. And then the idea that there would be some kind of uh, consciousness in this walking, talking abomination, body horror at its worst. And it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. 
it was her body that was floating above the table. No, oh, that was, that was uh, Charity uh, Burbage. Yeah. Yeah, Charity yeah, Burbage. Yeah. I that was terrifying to me because they actually have that in the studio tour. Her body Ooh. is floating above <sighs> that table and you know she's like her hair's like hanging down and her body's a mess. Yeah. It, she, it's in disarray. It, I would not want to go to the me. Warner Brothers studio tour at night. Let me tell you that. I not <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a great idea. They should do that during Halloween. After Turn the dark. lights down. Well, not <laughs> only that, Andrew, around. I mean, uh, doesn't it follow where Voldemort just says, Nagini, dinner? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that That's even worse <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Where's the Niffler pizza? Niffleroni. Niffleroni. <laughs> that's what nagini wants oh man so yeah and and patilda bagshot is also this whole you thought it was somebody else but it's not trope that we've been talking about so it's right. like mood it's like moody or it's like coral um secretly something evil that actively wants to do you harm and is lulling you in with this false sense of pride or false sense of security that's most of the stuff on our list here and what's the final thing on our list well it's the hermione torture scene uh by bellatrix and this is Really, we talked about certain moments that really hit home for Harry. Um, you know, seeing your your best friend be physically violated, tortured, um, you know, hearing the screams. It's just a really horrible, terrifying thing. Yeah. And especially at this stage of the series when, you know, Harry, Ron and Hermione, they're so close. And then to see her be tortured like this that's the worst of the worst okay so those were the spookiest moments across the harry potter series we hope you enjoyed that and we're gonna kick things up a notch in a moment we are going to do some spooky readings of some creatures in the fantastic beast book but first quip is back to sponsor this week's episode of MuggleCast, and they have news that makes this nerd smile they have a new toothbrush that rewards you for brushing your teeth This magical mouth stick just got even more magical. With Quip's new smart electric toothbrush, good habits can earn you great perks like free products, gift cards, and more. The new Quip smart brush for adults and kids connects to the Quip app with Bluetooth. You can track when and how well you brush your teeth. You can get tips and coaching to improve your habits. You can earn points for daily brushing and bonus points for completing challenges like streaks. You then redeem these points for rewards like free products, gift cards, and discounts from Quip and their partners. If you already have a Quip because you've heard us speak about it before and how amazing they are, you can upgrade it with a smart motor and keep the features you know and love. You get that sensitive sonic vibration and a two-minute timer with 30-second pulses for a guided clean. You also get that slim, lightweight, and sleek design with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. You also get the multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter, which is so clever. And beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. You can grab mint or watermelon toothpaste with anti-cavity ingredients for strong, healthy teeth, and they have an eco-friendly solar battery charger to power your Quip with sunshine. I love that so much. Start getting rewards for brushing your teeth today and go to getquip.com slash muggle right now to get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash muggle, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash muggle. You can also see a link in the show notes. Quip offers better oral health, made simple and rewarding. 
So it's time for us to do some readings here of some spooky creatures from Fantastic Beasts. And patrons, listen carefully because we want you to listen to these and tell us who you want an encore from because we have one more beast. (laughs) But that's going to be listener's choice in terms of who reads it. The Acromantula is a monstrous eight-eyed spider capable of human speech. It originated in Borneo, of course it did, (laughs) where it inhabits dense jungle. Its distinctive features include thick black hair that covers its body, its leg span, which may reach up to 15 feet, its pincers, which produce a distinctive clicking sound when the acromantula is excited or angry, and a poisonous secretion. The acromantula is carnivorous and prefers large prey. It spins dome-shaped webs upon the ground. The female is bigger than the male and may lay up to 100 eggs at a time, soft and white. These are as large as beach balls. The young hatch in six to eight weeks. Acromantula eggs are defined as Class A, non-tradable goods by the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures. Morons. Meaning that severe penalties are attached to their importation or sale. Wow. (laughs) Good job. I'm wow. spooked, you guys. Yeah, I don't <laughs> the last love line having to really... follow up on that. <laughs> <laughs> the last line doesn't really lend itself to creepy, but... Um, I, I, I know, I know, especially the part about the Class A non-tradable goods. Like, <laughs> it's all on how you deliver it, though, Micah. Yeah, it's true. I don't think I can make those losers creepy, but... <laughs> a thin and mournful-looking bird, somewhat like a small and underfed vulture in appearance. The augury is greenish black. The augury has a distinctive low and throbbing cry, which was once believed to foretell death. Wizards avoided augury nests for fear of hearing that heart-rending sound, and more than one wizard is believed to have suffered a heart attack on passing a thicket and hearing an unseen augury wail. <laughs> nice. The first recorded basilisk was bred by Herpo the Fowl, a Greek dark wizard in Possumouth, who discovered, after much experimentation, that a chicken egg hatched beneath a toad would produce a gigantic serpent possessed of extraordinarily dangerous powers. The basilisk is a green serpent that may reach up to 50 feet in length. The male has a scarlet plume upon its head. It has exceptionally venomous fangs. Damn it, the sound effects stopped midway through that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> it, has, <laughs> it has exceptionally venomous fangs. But its most dangerous means of attack is the gaze of its large yellow 
eyes. Anyone looking directly into these will suffer instant death. If the food source is sufficient, the basilisk will eat all mammals and birds and most reptiles. The serpent may attain a very great age. Herper the Fowl's basilisk is believed to have lived for close on 900 years. <laughs> that was good. Andrew, you sounded like a YouTube conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> I was going for like Haunted Mansion narrator, but I yeah, it's not bad. <laughs> that was good. This British and Irish water demon can take various shapes though it most often appears as a horse with bulrushes for a mane. Having lured the unwary onto its back, it will dive straight to the bottom of its river or lake and devour the rider, letting the entrails float to the surface. The correct means to overcome a kelpie is to get a bridle over its head with a placement charm, which renders it docile and unthreatening. The world's largest kelpie is found in Loch Ness, Scotland. Its favorite form is that of a sea serpent. See page 38. International Confederation of Wizard Observers realized that they were not dealing with the true serpent when they saw it turn into an otter on the approach of a team of muggle investigators and then transform back into a serpent when the coast was clear. That's the kelpie. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so patrons who are listening live... That's in the book, too. That's a Kelpie. It says it. <laughs> yeah. Patrons who are listening live, whose reading was your favorite? Who do you want an encore from? Sound off in the comments right now, and whoever receives the most nominations will read another one in a moment. Uh, but first, while we wait for your results to come in, we are going to do a group one now. The Leatherfold is a mercifully rare creature found solely in tropical climates. It resembles a black cloak, perhaps half an inch thick, thicker if it has recently killed and digested a victim, which glides along the ground at night. The earliest account we have of a leatherfold was written by the wizard Flavius Belby, who was fortunate enough to survive a leatherfold attack in 1782, while holidaying in Papua New Guinea. Near one o'clock in the morning, as I began at last to feel drowsy, I heard a soft rustling close by. Believing it to be nothing more than the leaves of the tree outside, I turned over in bed with my back to the window and caught sight of what appeared to be a shapeless black shadow sliding underneath my bedroom door. I lay motionless, trying sleepily to divine what was causing such a shadow in a room lit only by moonlight. Undoubtedly, my stillness led the Leatherfold to believe that its potential victim was sleeping. To my horror, the shadow began to creep up the bed, and I felt its slight weight upon me. It resembled nothing so much as a tippling black cape 
the edges fluttering slightly as it slithered up the bed towards me. <gasps> Paralyzed with fear, I felt a clammy touch upon my chin before I sat bolt upright. The thing attempted to smother me, sliding inexorably up my face, over my mouth and nostrils, but still I struggled, feeling it wrapping its coldness about me all the while. Unable to cry for assistance, I groped for my wand, now dizzy as the thing sealed itself about my face, incapable of drawing breath. I concentrated with all my might upon the stupefying charm, and then, as that failed to subdue the creature, though blasting a hole in my bedroom door, upon the impediment hex, which likewise availed me not, still struggling madly, I rolled sideways and fell heavily to the floor, now entirely wrapped in the lethe fold. I knew that I was about to lose consciousness completely as I suffocated, desperately, I mustered up my last reserve of energy, pointing my wand away from myself into the deadly folds of the creature, summoning the memory of the day I had been voted president of the local Gobstones Club. I performed the Patronus charm. Almost at once, I felt fresh air upon my face. I looked up to see that deathly shadow being thrown into the air upon the horns of my Patronus. It flew across the room and slithered swiftly out of sight. Gobstones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spooky. The Patronus <laughs> is the only spell known to repel the Leatherfold. Since it generally attacks the sleeping, though, its victims rarely have the chance to use any magic against it. Once its prey has been successfully suffocated, the Leatherfold digests its food there and then in their bed. It then exits the house slightly thicker and fatter than before, leaving no trace of itself or its victim behind. <laughs> All right, well, Micah, the people have spoken. We yep. did expect this. We knew it. It is you who will read this final creature. The Kappa is a Japanese water demon that inhabits shallow ponds and rivers, often said to look like a monkey with fish scales instead of fur. It has a hollow in the top of its head in which it carries water. The kappa feeds on human blood, but may be persuaded not to harm a person if it is thrown a cucumber with that person's name carved into it. In confrontation, a wizard should trick the kappa into bowing. If it does so, the water in the hollow of its head will run out, depriving it of all its strength. All right. Wow. Well, I hope everybody is properly spooked for Halloween now. <laughs> yeah. Carry a cucumber <laughs> on you. Yeah. yeah with your name these on are it. scary. Well, the spooks are going to continue in this week's edition of Bonus MuggleCast, available exclusively at Patreon. We're going to be talking about our own Bogarts. Don't miss next week's episode, in which we will review the new Mina Lima edition of Sorcerer's Stone. This is another illustrated edition. It looks to be a very beautiful one, so we'll talk about that next week. And we're also going to discuss the most unpopular opinions about the Harry Potter series as inspired by some social media posts we have been making over the past week. So that'll be a 
controversial and fun episode of MuggleCast. Thanks to that discussion. It's time now for Quizich. Last week's question, who was the seeker for the Irish national team in 1994? The correct answer is Aiden Lynch. So we know Victor Crumb on the one side on Bulgaria. Aiden Lynch was there for Ireland. The winning team, Correct by answers. the way. The winning team. What's that? The winning team. Oh. Yeah, the winning team. Because they, they played with strategy. You know, they they scored the most points, even though Crumb decided to end it and catch the snitch. Crumb still lost. Yeah, I was going to say, I, Ireland was the winning team, but no thanks to Aiden Lynch. Um. <laughs> oh, really? Never mind then. A- Aiden is well, not a winner. Yeah, yeah, because he did not in the end end the game. But anyway, correct answers were submitted by Darren, Lance, Sarah, Chelsea, Spook, Aitlin. <laughs> I love the Halloween horror versions of people's Twitter names. Danielle, Kent Ravioli, Hallow Wolf, and Stacy. Next week's question. How many muggles did the opal necklace reportedly kill? Ooh, spooky question. Katie Bell's necklace. I know. We were just talking about that. Submit your answer to us over on Twitter at ReplyMuggleCast and use hashtag Quizich. And also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We are MuggleCast on all three. If you have any feedback about today's episode, email MuggleCast at gmail.com or use the contact form on MuggleCast.com. You can also send us a voice memo to MuggleCast at gmail.com, record it with your phone, and send that file over. We like those because they're higher quality than calling us. If you do want to call us, our number is one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. Also, join us on Patreon. Like I said, in bonus MuggleCast this week, we're going to be talking about our Bogarts as well as the Bogarts of our patrons. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm uh, Micah. And I'm Laura. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>